to grab that Bible, open it up, and follow along with us. And if you're using your pew Bible, you'll find Romans chapter 13 on page 1007. So I want to encourage you to take a few notes this morning, keep your Bible open the whole time as we walk through this very important passage together, Romans 13 verses 1 through 7. If we were to design a discipleship course for new Christians, what subjects should we include in that curriculum? We might want to include uh, just an explainer of the gospel, like how, how, what are the basics of the gospel message and how to communicate it, how to pray, uh, how to study your Bible, practicing spiritual disciplines, that would be a big part of it. And we, might, we might talk about things like the meaning of baptism in the Lord's Supper. We might discuss the ethics of the Christian life, uh, the basics about sharing your faith with another person. There are some foundational things we would put into that curriculum for new believers. And that would be a robust curriculum. We would be so proud of that. We'd give it a catchy name. We would make a kids version and a teen version. We might share it with other churches as well and invite them to use our curriculum in discipling their new Christians as well. And let's imagine that somehow we were able to have the Apostle Paul with us to evaluate our new discipleship curriculum. We would hand it to him and say, Paul, what do you think? Look at what we've put together. Look at how well it's bound. And, and we paid for color copies as well. Paul, what do you think about our curriculum? And I think he would look at it and he would have a lot of positive things to say about it. But he might conclude it's incomplete. What do you mean, Paul? I mean, we, we've covered just foundational things. Well, it, it's incomplete. Well, I mean, sure, it's incomplete, Paul. I mean, it, we, we aren't intending to cover every subject matter under the sun. This is just your basics, just get you out the door, Discipleship 101. And uh, so, yeah, we, we understand there's more to come. Level two, we'll, we'll cover more of the details. Paul would say it's incomplete. And how do we know that Paul would say such a thing? How do we know that he would find this curriculum incomplete? Because in Romans 13, 1 through 7, he makes it clear that every Christian has to understand their relationship to their government. We are dealing this morning with basic Christianity, Discipleship 101. In our study of the book of Romans, Paul spent the first 11 chapters giving a thorough explanation of the gospel that salvation is by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And starting in chapter 12, he explains the requirements of the gospel on the Christian's life. So we are barely into his explanation of Christian ethics when we land on this segment of teaching about a Christian's relationship to the government. He hasn't talked yet necessarily about what prayer should look like or sound like or what evangelism should look like, but we get to chapter 13 and he begins to talk about our relationship to the government. And if that seems strange to you, it's probably because you weren't with us last week. And last week, in what we studied at the end of chapter 12, Paul has already described how a Christian lives under persecution. And now he pivots uh, to the government. And this is not some weird topical leap, but it's a natural progression and an important one. 
Romans chapter 13 has been a guide for God's people under every monarchy, every tyrant, every dictator, every military regime, and every representative republic. Uh, to be sure, it doesn't answer every question for every situation, but it does give the church solid footing for being residents of God's kingdom while living in a human kingdom. And is there anything about our lives in the last three years that might say to us, it's important for Christians to know how to relate to their government? I think so, and I hope you think so as well, because Paul certainly thinks so. If we're going to walk with Jesus in this earthly kingdom, we've got to know how and what that looks like. What are the consequences of getting this wrong? I mean, if the church gets our relationship to the government wrong, it can have catastrophic effects. Human history tells us that any time the church is in charge of the government, it is horrific. All kinds of human disasters come from the church getting our relationship to the government wrong. Are we supposed to withdraw and bail and live in little compounds? Are we supposed to take up arms and fight? Romans 13 brings balance to this discussion for us. If we get this right, then we're going to be the kinds of Christians who are assets to our communities and are bold with the good news of Jesus Christ. We will be anchored in the ever-changing tides of politics. Will be anchored in Jesus Christ. So my goal today is to clarify the implications of the gospel on our relationship to our government. I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7. Listen to what Paul writes. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for these reasons, you pay taxes, since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. When we read this passage, I, I, just, I think the first thing we do is think of reasons why it doesn't pertain to us. Paul's naive. Paul's not living in our cultural moment. Paul doesn't understand the nuances of the situations we're facing. This is for an ideal situation where government and people live in harmony with one another. But brothers and sisters, Paul wrote this to persecuted Christians living in the Roman Empire during the reign of Nero. And there's no footnote or asterisk here that says, this doesn't apply to you, but only in an ideal situation what Paul gives to the church in Rome, he gives to us. 
And we would do well to get this into our hearts and into our minds today. We're going to approach this passage in a little bit different of a format this morning. We're going to study it in a Q&A format. I'm going to ask four questions of this passage uh, to help us understand the flow of Paul's thought and the requirements of the gospel on us in our relationship to our government. What's the first question? The first question is this. What is a Christian's posture to the government? What is the Christian's posture to their government? And the answer to this question is found in verse 1. Paul writes, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So what is the answer to this question? What is a Christian's posture to the government? The answer, Christians should submit to their governments. Paul doesn't make a distinction here, again, between submitting to Christian leaders versus non-Christian leaders. The teaching is that God's people would live in submission to all governing authorities in all manifestations of government. It's interesting that Paul tells us to submit. He doesn't tell us to obey. Now, obedience to government, I think, is in the idea of submission. But you cannot submit without obeying You can obey without submitting. When Paul calls us to submit, he is calling us to a particular posture. Not just one of obedience, but one that recognizes the government is an authority over us and we are subjects under it. And submission is a thoroughly Christian posture. This should not be a strange concept to us. Over and over again in Paul's writings, he calls Christians to submit He tells Christians to submit to their spiritual leaders in 1 Corinthians 16. He tells Christian slaves to submit to their masters in Titus 2. He tells Christian prophets to submit to other prophets in 1 Corinthians 14. He tells Christian wives to submit to their husbands in Ephesians 5.24. He tells all Christians everywhere to submit to each other in Ephesians 5.21. Submission is the posture of your everyday Christian. This is the kind of people we are. And what's more, this idea of submitting to our government was a thoroughly Jewish idea of the relationship between God's people and their non-God-following, non-Jewish governments. Our Bible is full of examples of God's people living in governments that do not walk with God, whether it is their own government or it is Egypt, or it is Assyria, or it is Babylon, or it is Persia, or it is Rome, or it is TBD, the Bible is full of examples of God's people living in non-God-following governments and living in submission to them. One prominent example of this is found in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah the prophet sits down and he writes a letter in the voice of God to exiles in Babylon. And here's the instruction that God gives through this letter to exiles living in a different country, in a different place. Jeremiah 29, 7, part of the letter reads this way. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Here is an example of submission, even from the Old Testament, even in a most difficult situation. Submission does not mean agreement with a set of policies. Submission does not mean approval of the one who has the position of power. 
Submission and agreement aren't necessary. But submission in disagreement is necessary for God's people. This is really hard for us. It's hard for a number of reasons. Submission is hard because, one, we, we just naturally reject submission to authority going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We are not hardwired to submit to authority. Another reason it's hard, quite frankly, is because we have seen the failures of government over and over again throughout human history. And when we see government fail and fracture and hurt people, it can be hard to put ourselves in a position of submission. There's also a unique reason to you in this zip code as to why submission to government is challenging. Our football mascot is the New England Patriots. And that's not so much because of love of country, but hatred of tyranny. Look, we, it is baked into our bones in this land that we fight against tyranny. And so our posture, we're not the New England submitters, we're the New England patriots. We're going to take up arms and fight and do what we've got to do. So listen, culturally, we possess very real challenges at understanding and putting this practice into place. I've tried to think of an illustration that, that might help frame what submission looks like for us. Here's my best attempt. If this stinks, we'll just edit this out of the sermon later and then put it online. But I, I want you to have a word picture in mind for what submission might look like. Uh, I grew up with three younger brothers raised by our dad. And uh, imagine this scenario. My dad tells 17-year-old Cody to go play basketball with 10-year-old Drew. And dad says, now, Cody, Drew's in charge of the game. He's going he's gonna to set the rules. Drew, here's the rules I want you to play by. You're going to play to 15. This is out of bounds. This, so, Drew, here's the rules, and here's how you lead this game between you and big brother Cody, all right? Okay. Cody, you have to submit to these rules. And Drew's going to call the shots. You guys go play ball. All right, Dad. We go outside, and, and I, have, I have a couple of options in front of me. Option one is I can say, this is a stupid arrangement. Drew's going to mess it all up. I'm out. I'm not going to play. I'm not going to do what Dad has told me to do. I'm certainly not going to do what Drew is telling me to do. I'm out of here. That's one option. Another option is this. I could destroy Drew's face. I, I was on the varsity team. He's 10 years old. He can barely tie his shoes. I could just dominate and utterly crush him. That'd be no problem. But that's not what my dad's told me to do. He told me to submit. And so I, I am to let Drew set the rules and take the lead and get the score and maybe even get the win. And I can do that. Why? Because my concern is with honoring my dad. And out of trust in my dad, I'm going to follow his guidance and direction in this scenario. Now, I'm, I might object, Dad, I don't think this is, but Drew, but I, I, I can object, but because I trust my father and because I want to walk in obedience to him, I'm going to follow his way. I think, I think this is how we can think about our submission to our government. Our father has told us, go. He, he has saved us. He has rescued us. We put our trust in Jesus Christ, who was killed by the state, who rose victorious over it all. 
And he has told us, submit. And we've got options. We can withdraw altogether. I want nothing to do with this. Or we can take up arms. I'm going to fight. I'm not going to let this happen. Or because we trust our Heavenly Father who loves us and has our good in mind and His glory is His goal, we can walk according to His will and His purposes in submission to our government. God has saved people all over the world and He has chosen to place us in different governments. And He says, I I want you to live here for a temporary amount of time. Okay, God, what, what do I do while I live here in this country under this government? I want you to submit. Are you sure? Because we can just dig a hole and live in it. Or we can just take up weapons and fight against it. No, I want you to be salt and light. You're going to live here for a little bit of time. I'm coming back. It's not going to be long. But I want you to live here. And while you live here, I want you to obey me. I want you to submit to these authorities. But God, I'm not going to agree with all they do. I'm not asking you to agree. I'm just saying I'm putting them here for your good, for my purposes, And your position is to submit. All right. That's what you want. That's what we'll do. Well, that's what God wants. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need to do. A a proper posture to Christ will give us a proper posture to our government. If we recognize the state killed him, he rose victorious. He's victorious forevermore. He's the eternal king of the eternal kingdom who's coming again. And he is the one to whom we belong. Then it's no problem for us to take a posture of submission to our government. That's not weakness. That's not voicelessness. That's not sanctioning evil. It's walking in obedience to our Heavenly Father. What should our posture be to our government? It should be a posture of submission. Why? That's the second question. Why must Christians submit to the government? Well, Paul gives us two reasons why Christians should should submit to their government. First, we submit because government originates with God. Government is, this is God's idea. It is His common grace to us. Look at the middle of verse 1. Paul says this. He says, the authorities that exist are instituted by God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. What does Paul mean there in verse 1 when he says, the authorities that exist are instituted by God? Is he saying that every person in a position of government leadership is placed there by God with God's approval? I think that's hard to say when we know the caliber of the character of world leaders. When God puts a person in a position of leadership, that is not God signing off on their platform or their policies or their character. Rather, three different times in this passage, government leaders are called God's servants. They are accountable to God. So when we look at a person in a position of government leadership and say, that's God's man or that's God's woman... What we are saying is that person is under the accountability of God and they will give an answer for the way they govern to the God whom they serve. So what does Paul mean then when he says these authorities are instituted by God? He's telling us that government is a common grace. It's given by God to suppress evil and to do good for people. To call government a common grace is to say it's intended by God as a blessing to all people regardless of their standing with Him. 
So government is God's invention, just like marriage is God's invention. Government is a common grace, just as marriage is a common grace. And God has given this to us for our good to accomplish his purposes. So when someone opposes their government, they're actually opposing the good grace of God. The word oppose shows up two times in verse 2. Another way of translating that Greek word is rebel. There's, a, there's an intensity to this word oppose. It doesn't just mean disagreement. It, it means uh, armed, violent insurrection. That's the way the word is used in other places in Scripture. Not mere disagreement, but fighting, actively taking up arms against your government. So what Paul's describing in verse 2 is violent resistance against your government, not just mere disagreement. So Christians must submit to our governments. Why? First of all, because they originate with God. And the second reason Paul says we're to submit is to avoid wrath. Verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For it is God's servant and avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. So in verse 3, Paul states what should be true of governments, but it is not always true. Ideally, governments should never be a threat to what is good. They should praise citizens who do good. And then in verse 4, he describes how the government is God's servant for the good of people, but also for wrath on those who do evil. Again, in the ideal government, good behavior should be praised and evil actions should be punished. In this way, our government is a common grace to us. It punishes evil. It keeps evil at bay. The laws in our country keep evil suppressed in certain ways. Totally? No, not at all. Of course not. But is our country better off with laws in place to suppress evil? Yes, absolutely it is. Well, Paul then summarizes his argument in verse 5. He says, therefore, you must submit not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. So the mention of wrath takes us back to verses 3 and 4. And his mention of conscience takes us back to verse 2. By conscience, he means our knowledge of God's will and purposes so believers submit to authorities not simply to avoid punishment and save our skin, but because we possess insight into God's providential ordering of human history. So that's what we do, and that's why we do it. The third question is this, what does submission to government look like? And we get some insight in verses 6 and 7. Look at what Paul writes starting in verse 6. He says, for this reason you pay taxes... Since the authorities are God's servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. So the ancient Roman world was well acquainted with taxes. To not pay your taxes would bring severe punishment. And in fact, if a large enough group of people coordinated the non-payment of taxes, it could be considered a declaration of war. So it's possible that Paul's advice here was a way of keeping the social order undisturbed and not bringing unneeded attention to the church. The Christian church is a small group of people meeting in multiple different homes around the city of Rome. They have no power. They have no army. They have no defense. They have nothing. 
but they have everything in the Lord. And so Paul's instructions here could be a way of saying, keep your head down, let's be faithful, let's be about what the Lord has told us to be about. It's not time for you to take up arms to fight, to rebel, or to quit paying taxes because you object to the empire. But this instruction is also right in line with what Jesus has told us in Mark chapter 12. To give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to give to God what is God's. So this is not just Paul saying, hey, here's how we're going to make it through the next few months. This is Paul saying, this is what Jesus has already commanded us to do. Should Christians pay taxes? When we object to the empire, when we object to the policies, when there is corruption afoot, should Christians pay taxes? The Bible answers unequivocally, yes. We should pay our taxes and our tolls. And we should give respect and we should give honor. With this command to give taxes, we are at a distinct advantage. As residents of Massachusetts, we have ample opportunity to fulfill this command. Thank you, Jesus, for this. So what does submission look like? Let me give you a few ways of thinking about submission that are both from the text and that go beyond the text, all right? So one, we're going to obey the law, and we're going to pay our taxes too. The law is to pay our taxes, and so we're going to pay our taxes and thereby obey the law. This is proper for us. That's not me saying that we only obey the law as it pertains to taxes. Again, we understand that submission comes with an understanding of obedience. We're going to obey the law. We will absolutely pay our taxes But from there, we're going to go beyond the passage itself to think about what submission might look like. The third way we would submit is by contributing to the success of the country. Wherever a Christian lives, whatever flag flies over the land where the church meets, Christians should strive to be a benefit to that land and to that place. Joshua worked for the good of Egypt. Daniel worked for the good of Babylon. We cannot be salt and light while being crummy citizens. Fourth, we should pray for our leaders. Paul gives this instruction in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. He tells us to pray for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, from time to time, a, a, a brother or sister Christian has said jokingly, um, Oh, I pray for these leaders that God will take them out. But Paul's not weaponizing prayer in this instance. And we don't have the freedom or permission from the Word of God to do that either. Remember in Romans chapter 12, Paul told us uh, to bless those who persecute you. Do not repay evil for evil. And then he tells us in 1 Timothy 2 to pray for those in authority. We should be praying words of blessing for those who are in leadership. I think this teaching is especially important for you if those who are in positions of leadership are not those you voted for. We should not set aside the requirement to pray for them, to pray words of blessing for them, to pray that God would change their hearts even. We should not set aside that instruction just because we don't like the person in command. This instruction was given to Christians in the empire. Certainly, it applies to us as well. The fifth way we submit is by resting in the sovereignty of God. It's so easy to get frantic 
to panic, to be upset, to be disturbed, to think that government events are somehow working for or against the mission of God. But brothers and sisters, calm down. God is sovereign. And no matter the circumstances we live in, in this country or any country on planet Earth, our testimony is the same. Our God reigns. No need for panic when God reigns. One last question I want us to think about this morning from this passage is what are the boundaries to submission? I have no doubt that at various parts of this passage, this sermon, you've had some internal whatabouts. God has given government as a common grace. Oh, but what about? If you do good, the government won't punish you. Oh, what about? So many whatabouts when we try to study this. And and I want to deal with some of those, but before I do, again, I just want us to acknowledge that we seldom seek to follow Romans 13 in its plainest interpretation. Rather, we just bring a dump truck full of whatabouts in order to bend this passage to our own personal opinions and pride. We would do well to focus less on qualifying what Paul has said and instead show our trust in God by obeying His Word. That being said, followers of Jesus submit to government within some very important boundaries. The fact that these boundaries are not mentioned by Paul in this passage doesn't mean Paul didn't believe them. I think if we were to share these with Paul, it'd be like, yeah, that's a no-brainer. That doesn't even need to be said, which is why I didn't say it. But just for the sake of our clarity, what are the boundaries, or what are the boundaries to submission? First of all, God gets our total allegiance. Our allegiance is to God first and foremost and totally. We have a great example of this in Daniel chapter 3, verse 18, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told, either you bow to the image of the king or you get thrown in the furnace. And there in chapter 3, verse 18, the boys say, you can burn us if you want. We're not going to bow. You're not God. There's one God. So, Our allegiance is to God. Our worship is to God. Caesar gets what Caesar gets. Caesar gets a coin, but God gets your heart. Caesar gets the tax, but God gets your worship. We will never and we must never conflate allegiance to the government with worship of God. There is a hard separation between these two. So our allegiance is to God. First commandment fidelity, first and foremost and only to God And that never changes for people of faith. Another boundary is this. God gets our total obedience. He gets our allegiance. He also gets our obedience. So when the government forces Christians to disobey God, we go with God no matter the cost. An example of this is found in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John were arrested by religious authorities for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these religious authorities threatened Peter and John and commanded them not to preach the name of Jesus anymore. And in Acts 4.19, Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. God has told us to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. You, the governing authorities, tell us not to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Who do we obey? Do we obey man or do we obey God? And in this instance, we obey God. 
We never choose obedience to man at the risk of disobedience to God. We obey God totally. This is equally important also in the book of Revelation in which the central demand placed on God's people is to keep His commandments in the face of government pressure to do the contrary. So the church is never deterred from obedience to God. We're never deterred from praying, from worshiping, from spreading the gospel. We must do those things. The gospel must go forward no matter the cost. God gets our total obedience. A third boundary to our submission is God gets the final judgment. What happens when government leaders do not do what God has put them here to do? What happens when they are to be God's servant, but instead they are God's rebel? Well, like all people, they will face God's judgment, and God's judgment does not miss the mark. So in those places in the world where governments work against their people, God sees. And if we believe what Romans 12 says about God's judgment, we read it just last week, then we believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord. A leader's placement in a position of power does not mean they come with God's approval. It means they are under His authority. They must be submitted to Him. They are accountable to God to govern for the good of the people. Let me give you a real-life example of a person who knew the boundaries of submission. His name was Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider was a Protestant evangelical pastor in Germany in the 1930s. He was a German veteran of World War I. He loved Jesus very much. And he pastored two congregations in two different very rural communities in Germany. He was an early and outspoken critic of the Nazi regime. He was vocal about the increase of Nazi ideology in his own churches. And he went so far as to excommunicate those who did not respond to church discipline by rejecting Nazism. And as a result, he was arrested multiple times and he was interrogated frequently by Nazi officials. He was finally banned by the Nazis from pastoring his churches. This was their punishment. You cannot pastor these churches anymore. In fact, you cannot even live in these communities. You must leave. And this ran contrary to everything that Paul Schneider held dear. But his family and his friends and his parishioners begged him, stay alive and leave. And so he did for a few months. But while he was away, it ate at his soul that he had made vows to this church like a groom to his bride. Vows in the eyes of God. And who was this government to tell him that he could not fulfill his vows to his people? The church was here before that government and would be there after. Therefore, he had to be obedient to what God had called him to do. So he returned. And he went back to preach. And on a Sunday in October of 1937, he preached at one church in the morning, and then he was driving to an evening service in the other church when he was stopped and arrested by the Gestapo. He was put in a local prison for about a month, and then in November of 37, he was transferred <clears throat> excuse me, to the Buchenwald concentration camp. And there he opposed his captors at every opportunity. He preached the gospel from his prison window. He encouraged his fellow prisoners. Uh, he spent a great amount of time in solitary confinement. He was tortured in ways that are not fitting for public description. And finally, on July 18, 1939, 
He was killed by lethal injection. He was the first Protestant pastor martyred by the Nazis. That last sermon he preached, when he was imprisoned right after that, not getting to preach the sermon to the second congregation, he wrote the sermon down and had it smuggled out of the jail and delivered to that church and read. And I want you to hear a paragraph from that sermon. Schneider said this, Today we should be aware of the fact that confessing Jesus will carry a price and that for his sake we will come into much distress and danger, much shame and persecution. Happy the man who does not turn aside from these consequences. He will then see that God is a sure help in times of trouble who will come to our aid. The mercy and wonderful aid of God that help us through our troubles will be the experience of the congregation and church that do not draw back from persecution. In the middle of the storm, the words of the Lord hold true for the church that the gates of hell will not prevail. The Lord will certainly show himself to be alive and real in her midst. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the world. Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, gives us this core component of our discipleship. And that core component is our relationship to our governing authorities. God's people are to submit because the government is God's common grace to do us well. And certainly there are boundaries to that submission But brothers and sisters, we must walk in faith in our Lord in this. To be sure, it's a complicated matter that we must approach with much prayer and humility. But I have to believe that God has given us this instruction for our good. And that there's something we can learn from the persecuted Roman church about following Jesus while walking in submission to the government. Romans 13 reminds us that we belong to two kingdoms. We belong to the eternal kingdom of God and an earthly kingdom of people. This earthly kingdom is a temporary experiment. The kingdom of God was here before our country and it will be here after our country. And the success of God's kingdom is not tied to the fate of any nation on planet earth. The flags of no nations fly over God's throne. Therefore, Christians don't submit as people who are weak and voiceless. We are children of the eternal king, and we submit to our government at his command. If the Roman church did not conform to the pattern of their world, and if the Roman church had a renewed mind, and if the Roman church loved each other deeply as brothers and sisters, and if the Roman church blessed those who persecuted them and did not repay evil for evil, and if the Roman church submitted to the Roman Empire, and if the Roman church clung to faith in Christ while suffering the worst persecutions imaginable, then, oh God, make us like the Roman church who submitted to their governing authorities. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom. South Shore Baptist Church is an embassy of that kingdom, and we are one family working as ambassadors of heaven's righteousness and justice. So let us submit 
to our governing authorities. Love one another deeply and live for the kingdom to come. Let's pray together. Father, this is a hard teaching. And I have failed at it repeatedly. And the consequences of my failure have not just been a fracture in my obedience and my trust in you, but it's also resulted in a fracture in relationships with people I love. And I want to walk in your way and I want to trust you and we want to trust you, Lord, that your way is right. So, Lord, help us with our unbelief to believe this word in obedience to you. Give us your wisdom and your strength as we obey this command to submit to our governing authorities. Give us the full counsel of Scripture on our hearts and minds to guide us in the proper boundaries that we would be salt and light in the places we live, that we would pray for those in leadership over us, that we would walk as citizens of your kingdom now and forever. Lord, help us in this country and in every country on this planet where your people reside to walk in obedience to you, bearing unmistakably your identity in our lives. And let us do this so that the gospel would go forward and lives would be transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to be salt and light. Help us to be submitted. Help us to be your people through and through. It's in Jesus' name we pray.